please stand for the reading of the word. The presence of God is so tangible here this morning. We're in the book of Mark, Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. And let's read from, from verse 32. Chapter 14. Mark 14, verse 32. When you there, give me an amen. Amen. Then Jesus and his disciples came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he has in his disciples, well, he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. He said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Stay here and watch. He then went a little further and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Amen. Then he came and found his disciples sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you fall into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, and the flesh is weak. Amen. Amen. Can we pray? Father, I thank you for your presence. I thank you for your word. I thank you for those who have come and gathered with us in your name. I pray, Lord, that this morning you will now minister to our hearts, open to us the wondrous things in your word that we may see a reflection of our true natures and a reflection of you and have an appreciation for the sacrifice which you paid for us. Help us to leave here confronted, challenged and changed in the name of Jesus. And everybody says, Amen, amen and Amen. God bless you. You may take your seats. So good to have uh, some of our friends and visitors here this morning. Uh, some maestros in the house, Reba and his wife, uh, Leska, our MMI family. Thank you so much for joining us, Sebastian, Nikita, and our Pastor Wayne and his lovely wife in the corner there. You, you know when the, when the fire started in the Old Testament of judgment, it kindled from the back. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Amen. So good to have you. I don't know if I missed anyone here, but you are all in your father's house. Hallelujah. And uh, we had a new venue, but the mission has remained the same. The vision has not changed. Amen. So uh, it's just good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. We start on our series uh, it's our Easter series on the book of Mark. 
so we're in the Gospel of Mark for the next few weeks. Please, I'll encourage you to, uh, in your spare time, please make sure you are reading through the Gospel of Mark. Read it through repeatedly. Read it through prayerfully. Read it through telescopically. You know, just get the Word of God in you during this time and season uh, because this is a season where we celebrate all that Christ has done. Amen. Amen. And uh, the title of our, our, our message this morning is The Courageous King. The Courageous King. He said to his disciples in John 16, just before he was arrested, just before he was crucified and tried and buried, he said to his disciples, in this world you will suffer told us his disciples because he knew and understood the mission they would embark on. He said, you will have suffering in this world, but be courageous. Know that I have conquered the world. And so a conquering king told his disciples to be courageous. And in my opinion, no one has ever been more courageous and no one has ever had more courage than Jesus. Because he faced the darkest hour of humanity and he faced the gravest of fears that have ever existed. Merriam-Webster defines courage as the mental or moral strength to venture, persevere, and withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. And so courage does not mean the absence of fear. It doesn't mean that you don't feel afraid. It just means that you triumph over it. And the brave man, Nelson Mandela, said, is not the one who does not feel afraid, but the one who conquers that, that fear. Life will shrink or expand in proportion to your courage. And the way I understand courage is courage is simply, and it begins when you simply show up. You show up and you face your fears eyeball to eyeball and you decide to grow up. And you decide to become all that God has called you to become. Amen. That is courage. And so our book synopsis this morning, as you've well uh, guessed, our author of the Gospel of Mark is John Mark himself. John Mark in the Roman world would have been called Marcus. Sounds like a ghetto name. <laughs> From Aldo's. <laughs> Al Marcus. <laughs> it's possible that in writing the Gospel of, of Mark, that he leaves his signature in his narrative in, in chapter 14 towards the latter part, where he describes a man who was arrested, he was following Jesus, and while Jesus was arrested by all these soldiers of, of the Pharisees and chief priests, there was this young man who was arrested but fled. And he fled half naked because he left his, his linen, the scripture says, behind. And so it's possible that 
the person that Mark was referring to was actually himself, and it was his way of, of putting his signature on the portrait of, of his gospel. And so we also introduced to Mark in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, we told of a woman, and this woman hosts gatherings and meetings in her home. And so she, uh, she held these meetings in, in the early church in Jerusalem, and Peter would frequently be part of these meetings. And so when Peter was supernaturally released from prison, he found himself once again at the house of this woman. And this woman was the mother of Mark. And so Mark grew up in a home that nurtured the faith, that hosted gatherings, and that hosted the disciples. And that's why we are so adamant about, about Connect Tuesdays. Because, you know, uh, the experience of gathering in his name in various homes gives an opportunity for our family and our children to be nurtured in the faith. Amen. We are also introduced to Mark in a not so pleasant light, light in Acts chapter 12. Bible says that he accompanied Barnabas and Paul and on their first missionary trip he ran away. He fled like a coward. And so Barnabas and Paul, while they're planning their next mission, he's saying, let's bring Mark again. And Paul is refusing. Paul's saying, no, man, this, this guy was a coward. He forsook us in our previous mission. How can we bring him back again? But Mark was the uncle or the nephew of Barnabas, and so Barnabas might have been a little bit biased and says, no man, let's bring the lad along. And so they had this, this contention between them yeah. and this huge disagreement between them, and Paul and Barnabas split. Yeah. And they ended up going on two separate missionary trips. Later on, it seems that the relationship between Mark and Paul was restored because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul tells us and he writes to the church and he says, please bring to me my son, John Mark. In, I have great need of him. So, Paul, so, so Mark's story tells us and shows us how God can restore us again to ministry even though we have previously failed. Yeah. Mark turned out to be a travel companion for the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter sends greetings to the church and he says, my son Mark is with me. Just as Mark was a son to Peter, he was a, he was a son to Paul as well. And it seems like the relationship that Mark had with Peter was paralleled with the relationship that Luke had with the Apostle Paul. And so it was this relationship that Mark had with Peter that became the foundation of his gospel. Because Peter was a first-hand eyewitness of everything that occurred in the life of Christ. And so many have speculated the purpose of Mark's gospel because Mark wrote and lived in a time where Nero Claudius Augustus was the fifth Roman em emperor and he 
was notoriously and infamously known as one of the most brutalist, self-indulgent tyrant that ever ruled over Rome. And so, most contemporary sources describe him this way, and eventually, at the age of 30, the Roman Senate declared Nero debauched. And Nero committed suicide. But Nero was infamously known for the butchery and torching of Christian believers all over the known world. And so many have speculated and said perhaps the purpose why Mark is writing his gospel is to encourage the church. But when you closely examine the gospel of Mark, you will discover that this is not the reason why he's writing his letter. He's writing this gospel because he's addressing an issue and a question that is pre prevailing in the time that he is living and the question that people are asking in his time is, how is it possible and why should anyone believe in a so-called miracle man that died for our sins? Why should anyone believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God? And in response, Mark writes his gospel as an apologetic for the cross. And he says... That the reason why this man that you refer to as a lunatic or pretender is the son of God and the Messiah of the world is not just because he claimed to have died for our sins. No. Because his death was foretold by the prophets. Yeah. And his death fulfills what was foretold by the Old Testament prophets. And not only was his death foretold and prefigured by Old Testament prophecy, but he himself foretold his death, burial, and resurrection. Mark chapter 8 verse 31 says, And he began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And this is what makes his death a ransom for many in that his death was not a martyr's death it was an atoning substitutionary death for the ransom of all mankind and not just that he died he rose again as he had foretold and the Jews in his time had asked for a sign what's the sign that you're the Messiah what What's the sign? How do we know? He said, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah, who was three days in the belly of the whale. And the Son of Man will be three days in the belly of the earth, and on the third day he will rise again. And this is the message that caused many disciples to be unmoved and unwavering in their faith that they were willing to be torched and burned at the stake. They were willing to die for their eyewitness account that Jesus Christ was risen. If you approach any one of the Gospels like a modern biography or just as a historical narrative, you will miss the point completely. 
if all you see the gospel as is a biography of Jesus or a story about Jesus, you must the plot. Each gospel is a portrait of Christ. Each gospel is a portrait of Jesus as the Messiah. Each gospel author wrote with an intention, wrote with a plot, an agenda in mind. Why was it necessary to have four gospels? Because a picture is never more complete with different angles. And there's four Gospels because there's four audiences. Matthew is writing to the Jews. Mark is writing to the Romans. Luke is writing to the Greeks. And John has a universal audience in mind. And so first Peter chapter 5 tells us that Mark is in Rome and he's addressing the Roman believers. And we see this in his style and his approach to writing his gospel in that he uses frequent Aramic expressions and Aramic language and he goes to a great deal to explain certain Jewish customs so this tells us that he is writing to people who are not familiar with Jewish customs he, his audience is not Jewish his audience is a bit more universal why four gospels in particular because the number four in biblical numerology is the number of creation. You have four seasons, you have four cardinal points on a compass, you have four lunar phases, there's the expression four corners of the earth. On the fourth day God created all the material uh, uh, world. Uh, the fourth commandment is the law of the, of the Sabbath, obeying the Sabbath. And so the number four speaks of creation. It's the number of the earth. The fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, alphabet is the, the phrase which refers to dominion. It's the word dalet, which means to have dominion. And so when you get four portraits of Christ, this is a message of his earthly ministry of dominion. And so Mark paints this portrait of Jesus as the servant savior. He's the servant savior. And you'll see this in the key verse that is found in chapter 10 verse 45 where the Bible says, Jesus, the son of man, did not come to be served but came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He served. His life was a life of service to God the Father. He served and he gave his life a ransom for many. Mark also portrays Jesus as the authoritative, miracle-working Son of God. No other gospel gives more attention to the miracles of Jesus than the gospel of Mark. We see in total 22 miracles recorded in the gospel of Mark. 11 were healings, 6 were wondrous miracles, 4 were deliverances, and lastly was his resurrection from the dead. The four Gospels record in total 37 miracles, of which 22 are referenced in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is trying to give us a sense that God 
is determined to overcome the forces of evil. And so for centuries, and I'm guilty of this as well, and you may be guilty of this as well, for centuries the church has paid little attention to the Gospel of Mark because it's the shortest Gospel. And we view it as a summary compared to Matthew, Mark, uh, Matthew Luke, or John. We even seen the early church, the early fathers gave little attention to the Gospel of Mark. In fact, it was only until the 6th century that any scholar decided to write a commentary on the Gospel of Mark. This changed, however, when Irenaeus and theologians discovered that Mark was actually the first Gospel written. Yeah. This means that Mark, in particular, has more of a, a historical value in the New Testament and in the uh, canon as a whole as we speak to it. This means that Mark is the foundation of the Synoptic Gospels. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark starts off and states, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the first gospel author and the only one to refer to his account as a gospel. And so many are led to believe that he pioneered the gospel genre. And many others followed suit, like Matthew, Luke and John. Mark's literary style is unique unique to the New Testament he uses a phrase and an adverb repeatedly which gives you a sense of his plot and, and his mission he uses the phrase immediately a lot he uses that phrase over 49 times we see that in, in chapter 1 where it says and it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by the Jordan in the river and immediately coming up from the water the heavens opened and parted and the spirit descending upon him like a dove then a voice came from heaven and said you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased again he says immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness again in the next chapter it, the Bible says then they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath again in, in the following chapter it says now a leper came to Jesus imploring him kneeling down to him and saying to him if you're willing you can make me clean then Jesus moved with compassion stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing to be cleansed. And as soon as he has spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was declared cleansed. Mark's gospel is fast-paced. Mark plunges us immediately into the ministry of Jesus. He doesn't get caught up with any parables or discourse, discourses or discussions. He gets straight into the demonstration and work of Jesus and almost in these abrupt scenes and short vignettes, he rolls out miracle after miracle in quick succession and in short paragraphs. We move from Jesus being baptized by John, tempted by Satan, embarking on a ministry in Galilee and turning the country town of Galilee upside down to casting out devils to being found in the garden 
of Gethsemane. It gives us, the reader, a clear sense of the determination of Jesus in fulfilling the purposes of God. And perhaps one of the most beautiful literary styles that Mark adopts is something that's called intercalation or in, in user-friendly terms uh, because you're going to walk out here and say, hey, this preacher's throwing around big jaw-breaking terms. Uh, the sandwich effect. He uses what's called in writing a sandwich effect. In other words, he tells one story. And while telling that story, he inserts another story and then picks up on the first story. And so the second narrative kind of is like the filling in your sandwich. Like polonia, you know, red pink polonia that you so love. He inserts the second narrative to be the full in between the sandwich. We see him do this over six times in his gospel. He does this in Mark chapter 5. He tells a story about synagogue leader whose name is Jairus. Jairus comes to him and says, Lord, my daughter is sick and dying. Please come and heal her. Jesus gathers his troops. They make their way over to Jairus' house. But on on way to Jairus' house, while that miracle is in motion, there comes another situation, another narrative where a woman with the issue of blood comes and touches the hem of his garment and she is healed and then he picks back up on the story of Jairus where she's now dead and he raises her from the dead and Mark does this frequently and when we get to our passage in Mark chapter 14 Mark does it again he starts off in verse 1 of chapter 14 if you were noticing he starts off by telling us that the Jews and chief priests had a plot to kill and arrest Jesus that's how he starts off the chapter they have this plot to kill and arrest Jesus but they don't want to do it during the, the Passover they don't want to do it during the feast of unleavened bread so they wait and while this narrative is rolling out Mark tells us about another scene in Bethany of a woman who came while he's in the house of some religious leaders, a woman who comes and anoints his head yeah. with oil, expensive spike knot oil. She pours this oil on his head. She anoints his feet. You know, I think Luke tells us that this unnamed woman is actually Mary who was possessed by many spirits and, and, and this woman comes and anoints Jesus with this expensive oil and apparently in biblical times it was the custom of the host that when a guest entered the home they would put drop your no just drop a, 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 a bit of oil on your head if you were the guest to come in but what this woman does is goes to the extreme she becomes lavish and pours this whole expensive jar of oil on his head and what does this do this invokes the anger of the men in that home and the religious leaders in that home but more in particular Judas because Judas responds and says why this waste this could have been sold and given to the poor 
And Jesus gets upset and defends this woman's worship and says, leave her alone. Sometimes, you know, the English translations will not give us the true picture of the text. You know, we really sometimes I feel we are disadvantaged if we don't go beyond the surface of Bible reading. And so in the Greek, when Judas says, why this waste? He's using a Greek term that's called, well, the term is apolio. Now that term is also translated as perdition and destruction. So here is Judas looking at this waste and looking at the sacrifice, and here he's saying, why this apolio? Why this waste? And Mark, in a sense, uh, you know, we don't, we don't kind of get the irony in it because Judas was referred to in John 17 as the son of perdition. Almost implying that he's pointing out this woman's worship and saying, why this waste? But in actual fact, his life was a waste. And so this woman comes, she anoints Jesus and he defends her and he says, leave her alone. What she did was for my burial. She anointed me for my burial. And he goes on to say that she did what she could. And that's all Christ expects from us in our worship, to do what you can. That's the measure of worship. Just do what you can. If you don't need to sing if it gift you to sing. You, know? you don't need to, to be able to, you know, be an accountant if he didn't call you to be an accountant. He called you to be a lawyer. You know, God doesn't expect from you what he hasn't deposited in you. And he says, this woman has done what she could. He says, leave her alone. And then Mark picks up on the plot again and says that it was at this moment that Judas was triggered. And he goes out and seeks to betray Jesus with the chief priests. And so there's a contrast and parallel between this woman's worship and Judas's betrayal. And so Judas agrees to sell out the Messiah for a bag of silver. And I like to say um, that, you know, wherever you find bad religion, you'll find bad business. The love of money is still the root of all evil. And so the last thing that I'll state about this woman's worship is that in the midst of the plotting to betray Jesus, in the midst of the betrayal, in the midst of Peter, that's about to deny him and his disciples dispersing and scattering. In the midst of all of that, here was this woman's worship. It was almost like Jesus found a moment of upliftment during this dark, betraying time 
he finds this light at the end of the tunnel and he says because this woman has done such a thing wherever the gospel is preached her name will be mentioned she was immortalized in the kingdom of heaven because she worshipped him and understood why she worshipped and so can you imagine you have the spike knot oil on you he's anointed from head to toe and in a few hours he sets out into the most horrific time and crisis of his life and while he's praying he still has the scent of Mary's worship can you imagine being betrayed taken to the whooping post beaten mercilessly 39 times and he gets the scent of Mary's worship can you imagine they're nailed on the cross suffocating and bleeding away and with his head dropping down he gets the scent of Mary's <coughs> worship what she done was not insignificant this was a critical moment of worship no worship goes unwasted and so the bible says in chapter 17 that jesus goes on with his disciples to celebrate the passover he gives judas a chance to repent between verses 17 and 21 knowing he's going to betray him he says the man who dips his bread with me is the man who's my betrayer even judas had an opportunity to repent because that's the grace and mercy of god and then jesus goes on to institute the, what we call the lord's supper he takes the bread he blesses it he breaks it he says this is my body broken for you he takes the cup he fills it with the grape of the vine and he gives it to them and he says drink this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you this is the blood that will speak better things than the blood of abel that cried out for, for vengeance this is the blood that cries out father forgive them for they know not what they do Amen. this blood will be better than the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a hypha this blood will wash away the sins and iniquities of all the world to those who will come to repentance and the hymn writer says a sinner plunged beneath his blood loses all his guilty stains this precious blood will never lose its power until all and every ransomed soul of God is saved and will sin no more the blood of Jesus he commemorates and institutes the Lord's Supper. And between the cup and the traitor's kiss, we have Jesus and his disciples make their way to a place called Gethsemane. They walk down the narrow streets of Jerusalem and they pass by the Kidron Valley. And if you know your Bible, you'll know that this was the same place that David passed by after Absalom had betrayed him and wrenched the hearts of the people and stole the throne of the kingdom he walks by the same path by the Kidron Valley and he reflects on his mission that he now must turn the hearts of the people back to their true king walks by these narrow streets and he comes to this place called Gethsemane 
the garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives, it's eastward of Jerusalem. The word and term Gethsemane means the oil press. It was a garden of olives where oil was produced through the crushing of the olives. And in a dramatic sense, Christ finds himself in this garden hours before his arrest. It's almost, you know, so ironic that he comes to a garden because in a garden is where it all went wrong. The first Adam failed in the Garden of Eden, and the last Adam would accomplish his mission, the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah. It was in the Garden of Eden that Adam would partake of the fruit, and it would be in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus would partake of the cup. It was in the Garden of Eden where man was found speaking with the serpent, and it's in the Garden of Gethsemane where we find the Son of Man calling on his Abba Father. So Luke 22 tells us that this was a place that Jesus was accustomed to going. He was accustomed to praying at this garden. He frequented this place to pray. It was his place where he prayed. And I'm convinced we'll see many more victories and conquests in our lives if we have places to pray. If we have places to frequent in the darkest moments of our lives, where do you hide away to pray when you're faced with a crisis? Do you have a place to pray? It was at Gethsemane that Jesus faced the greatest challenge of his life and the greatest crisis of his life. He took his disciples with him but he left the rest of them at one place and he takes his closest disciples with him further to pray. It's important in the darkest challenging moments of your life that you have close friends that you can rely on and that you can draw on. And so Jesus is trying to solicit the support of his friends. They come with him to pray and Jesus begins to pour out his heart he becomes extremely distressed extremely troubled he expresses it to his close friends he says to them my soul is extremely sorrowful even to the point of death the living Bible says he took Peter, James, and John with him and began to be filled with horror and deepest distress. And he said to them, my soul is crushed by sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and pray with me. Message Bible puts it this way, that his soul sank into the pit of suffocating darkness. Not only did he express his moment of vulnerability to his disciples but his posture told it all because when he got down to pray he fell on the ground in prayer Luke tells us that when he prayed he prayed with great drops of sweat that were like blood 
The writer of Hebrews puts us into a better picture of how Jesus was praying and weeping in the garden when he said in chapter 5 verse 7, Jesus who in the days of his flesh who had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement strong cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. He was vehemently weeping and crying out to God in desperation. Can you imagine the scene for a moment? Jesus' full humanity is on display. He is completely unguarded, vulnerable, exposed before his closest disciples. This is the champion of God. This is God's man of faith and power. This is the man that they saw heal the sick. This is the man they saw demons tremble at. This was the man who cast out legion of demons from a man who was bound that nobody could bind. This was a man who walked on water. This was the man that when he stood before Lazarus' grave, he was dead three, four days. Rigor mortis has settled in. He stands before his tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus lives and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. They've never witnessed a prophet like this before. Jesus was God's man of faith and power, the champion of the world, the champion of heaven, the Messiah that the prophets have spoken of. And here he is vulnerable, exposed, he's, he's, he's unguarded. And there's a leadership lesson in this for us because nowadays you see every man of God walking around like they the head hacho, like they have everything together. And they're not allowed to have a moment of weakness. Yeah. What was it that caused Jesus to come under such anguish and distress? If you think it was the barbaric, brutal execution that the Romans had devised, then you've missed the gospel. As brutal and agonizing as the method of crucifixion is, that is not what he feared. What he feared was not a physical horror. What he feared was a spiritual horror. The cup he referred to when he prayed and said, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass me by. If there's another way, take this cup from me. Repeated in the Old Testament, the cup is a picture of the wrath and judgment of God. You'll find it in Psalm 75, Isaiah 51, and Jeremiah 25. Jesus became, as it were, an enemy of God who was judged and forced to drink the cup of the Father's fury. He was judged as though the life he lived was the life you lived. So the cup became a metaphor for what would be the imputation and transference of sin. He would become the scapegoat of the Old Testament. And the high priest would lay his hands upon him, transfer the sins of the nation upon him. He would be dispelled into the wilderness. And, and this was the judgment 
that Jesus feared. He anticipated this horrific sacrifice and became overwhelmed. How could he have not hesitated at such a sacrifice? I mean, think of it. Every sin that has ever been ever been, been done, that's ever existed, and the sins to come, he must carry the sins of this world. No angel, no power, no archangel, no cherub was qualified to carry this out but him. He cried out, Lord, if it's possible, if there's another way. He was the only one worthy, so he repeatedly prayed and said, Lord, let this cup pass. For three hours, he repeatedly prayed, Lord, let this cup pass. He started to feel the weight of the burden that he must bear. This was a colossal weight, a gigantic weight. No man was able to carry this weight. And I would not have blamed him if he threw in the towel. Because who can bear such an unbearable load of sin? But he sacrificed his will for his fathers. He said, nevertheless, not as I will, but what you will. The sacrifice of his blood was important, but not as important as the sacrifice of his will. The sacrifice of his blood would have never occurred had he not been willing to sacrifice his will. There would be no Calvary without a Gethsemane. And if you want to pursue the will of God for your life and become all that God called you to be, you have to do something that Jesus said which is extremely uncomfortable. He said, you've got to deny yourself, yeah. take up your cross, and follow me. The whole duty of man is summed up in that statement of Jesus. Not my will, but yours. Not my truth, but your truth. Not my opinion, but your will be done. And whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But he who loses... His, wolf, his life for my sake will find it. The most infallible evidence and proof of your love for Jesus and your love for God is not found in the, on the expression of your lips. It's found on the crucifying of your will. And Jesus taught us a few things here in closing. He said, if you want to pursue the kingdom, you want to be obedient to God you have to be willing to crucify your will for his it is a contradiction to have someone who says I love you Lord I give my heart to you and you are walking around with an uncrucified will you are not willing to obey the word of God. When it gets too inconvenient, you serve him on your own terms. 
when he disturbs your comfortable zone. When he calls you out of your place of convenience, are you willing to say, yes, Lord, your will be done? And Jesus taught us the most important lesson of all, crucify yourself. You think too highly of yourself. He also taught us that in the greatest challenges we face, we can draw on the greatest resource, prayer. In the darkest moments of his life, he prayed. In the darkest moments of our life, oh, we complain, we run, run, call, because, you know, complain to so-and-so, we have a pity party, you know, we, we, we call the counselors, the psychiatrists, the psychologist, the pastor, the bishop, you know, you get on the phone with your sister and your bestie, and you complain about so-and-so and, and all your challenges and you put up a post on Facebook and you're having a rant on Facebook. Huh? WhatsApp statuses, I see some of you guys on your WhatsApp status. How often do we turn to prayer? Just you and him. You know what Jesus did was got along with, with his father and he was real. He was real. He said, I don't want to do this. This is too much. I can't do this. Everything's possible with you. Take this cup away. The Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame. Endured the cross. In other words, while he's there, struggling with this decision because he was a man. Struggling, should I carry this load? Will I make it out alive? All things are possible with you. He's struggling, he's having a moment of extreme anxiety. I know a lot of you now, the, the new thing is, you know, anxiety. But, but here he is going through an anxiety you have not met and will never meet. The pit of darkness that was trying to suffocate him. But he thought of your face, your face flashed before him kept on thinking of you and he said not my will but yours he taught us that we can be vulnerable with God and we can be vulnerable with those close to us and lastly he taught us courage that it's okay to be afraid doesn't mean you're not brave because you feel afraid but bravery begins when you show up and when you own all that he's called you to be and you say yeah my send me Lord he was a courageous king and he's looking for courageous Christians no more lip service life service why do you draw near to me with your mouth and your lips and your heart is afar off 
Will you do what the woman at Bethany did? She did all that she could. She took a year's worth of wages in, and she poured it out on his head and on his feet. She gave all that she could in the moment that he needed it the most. What does your worship look like? What does your prayer life look like? Can we stand? Can we close our eyes at this moment? Don't worry about the person next to you. It's just you and him. You and him. And I'll ask you a few questions. <coughs> Have you crucified yourself? Have you given him your heart? Have you given him your life? Have you repented of your sin? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Summer has passed. Autumn has passed. And you are still not saved. What a great sacrifice was paid for you, sir. Was paid for you, young lady. You will never know. It will take you a hundred lifetimes to scratch the surface of the immensity of that sacrifice. And this morning you had a small picture of what he had to go through. What are you willing to go through to be with Him? What are you willing to sacrifice to be with Him? All He asks for is not what's in your hand, but what's in your heart. Will you give Him your life today? Will you say yes to Jesus? To anyone here, just boldly and bravely just lift up your hands. I want to pray with you. Don't be shy. Don't be afraid. Boldly proclaim that this is the hour of my salvation. Lift up your hands higher so I can see. I see those hands. Nothing you can put that down. Nothing you give to him will come close to what he's done for us. And all that he did for you was because he loves you. And this morning, this is your roadblock. It's him saying again, we're not just going to do church as usual. We're not going to preach 30-minute motivational sermons. He wants you. He wants you. He wants you. Stop hiding. Stop being a fugitive. He wants you. If you've raised your hand, please come forward. Boldly come forward. We're not going to smuggle you in. Come forward. Everybody hands out and pray. This is serious business. This is heaven or hell.
Come on, give them one more hand. He was brave for you. You be brave for him. You be brave for him. You live your life for him. You take a stand for him. No more faltering to the left or to the right. No more compromise. You place your anchor in him. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I honestly don't like saying the sinner's prayer because there's no formula in this. Bible says with the heart one believes and with the mouth confession is made. So as I'm leading you in prayer, I want you to cry out to God on the bottom of your heart and say, Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry. Come live inside of me. I'm here to stay. The Heavenly Father, I love you. I give my heart back to you. Come and live inside of me. 